Lord Jesus, we thank you for this beautiful day of worship. We pray, Lord, that you would be with us in your spirit as we look through these passages today. Lord, you have given us the beauty of the church and the elders in the church to care for us and to care for our souls, Lord. And we pray, Lord, first that you would forgive us for every way that we failed in that as the church and as elders, Lord. We pray that you would forgive us, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would heal the hearts of those who have been hurt by bad shepherds in the church. We pray, Lord, that you would help to heal those wounds so that the beauty of your church and what you have organized, what you have instituted for us, we could would reemerge in our minds and we would be able to see how wonderful it truly could be and can be, Lord. And we are all fallible. We are all fallen. And none of us do this perfect. And so, Lord, we pray most of all that you would help all of us keep our eyes on Jesus, Lord, who was the perfect example of the suffering servant, which all elders should be modeled after, the perfect example uh, of his love that is easy to be obedient to, Lord. So please help us to see the beauty of Christ today. And we pray that your spirit would illuminate our minds uh, to the text, Lord, uh, and to the truth that you have in it, Lord. Without your spirit, we would be without hope to learn and to know uh, of your goodness. So we pray, Lord, that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word as you promise that in and through the word you are going to beautify and heal your afflicted ones, Lord. And we need that so badly. So we call upon you to remember that promise to us today, to be with us, to guide us, and to shepherd us all, Lord, as we think about these things in Jesus' name, amen. So today we are uh, talking about uh, we are going through a short series. So like uh, at the, I just said during the announcements that next week is our particularization service where we become an independent church. And I, I will be installed as the pastor and uh, we'll be installing elder, uh, Herb is an elder in the church, installing deacons. Up to this point, we've just been a, we've been a mission church, really a mission work. And next week, we will become a fully organized church. And as part of that service, we're going to like re- uh, restate our vows to one another, the vows of the congregation, the vows of the elders to the congregation. We're going to, uh, there will be charges delivered to us to faithfully discharge the duties of our ministry. And it's a, it's, it's a beautiful thing, but it's also a very serious thing. And so we thought as a part of that leading up to that event, we would go through uh, those membership vows that we take. And uh, so last week we talked about one of, like, one of the most uncomfortable things to talk about, giving to the church. And today we're going we're gonna to go for, a, we're going to double up, double header. We're going to talk about the next most difficult thing to really talk about, which is the call of the church to, for us to submit to our elders. And this includes everybody. I'm not... As an elder, I'm not just talking to you, but I also have a call on me to submit to the elders that oversee me. So we're all really in the same boat. And as we start out, I want to like recognize, and I hinted at it in our in our prayer that this is there's some uh, you know, cultural reasons why this is a really hard topic to talk about, but there are also reasons from within the church that sometimes this can be really tense, and that's because. There are and have been bad shepherds who have abused congregations, and there are people who have been really wounded and hurt by that, and we have to be super conscious of that when we talk about this. 
Uh, and so I hope it'll come out as we go through it that I'm going to talk about our responsibilities to our elders, but also in a bigger way, really the elders' responsibility to us and why it's a good and beautiful thing. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Would you please stand, if you are able, for the reading of God's Word? I picked three passages out uh, to underline <clears throat> this, this membership vow, which is this. Here's the membership vow. Do you promise to respect the elders, to submit to them as they care for you according to God's Word, to pray for them and to do what you can to promote the purity and unity of Christ's church. I'm going to read from Hebrews chapter 13, 1 Peter 5, and Ephesians 4. So here we go. Let's listen intently to God's inerrant word. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. And let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, and not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock." And I, therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. For there is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all." But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. But rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Most of you know uh, my story that I uh, and some of the other leadership, quite a few people in the church, ended up coming into Christianity through the back door of Alcoholics Anonymous, through recovery programs. And... Uh, I remember one day when I, in, in Alcoholics Anonymous, there's a very strong culture of mentorship and discipleship where you would ask someone who was experienced, had, had a lot of sobriety to really mentor you and would sponsor you is what they call it in the program and help you to learn and grow in your sobriety. And I remember when I first sat down with uh, the first guy I had asked to be my sponsor and he talked to me for a little bit. Uh, he got a kind of a gist of where I was at and who I was, and he told me, he said, look, he goes, because I can tell you're a pretty smart guy, 
And what you need to know right off the bat is that we bury a lot of really smart guys around here because you always think you're right. And he said, if you want to live, and he got real serious. He's like, if you want to live, you need to learn to be like Forrest Gump. And I was like, what? <laughs> what, kind of, what kind of crazy man did I just accidentally ask to be my sponsor? And I was like, oh, OK. So I'm, I was like, what, what does that mean? And he goes, well, that, what it means is, he goes, there are going to be certain points of time, and I'm going to tell you, run, Forrest. And when I say run, you better just start running. And what did he mean by that? What he meant was, when he said, run, Forrest, when he said, when he gave me instruction or advice or something, he was saying, now what you're going to want to do as that smart guy is you're going to want to like rethink it in your mind and, and, and base uh, you know, what you should do off of your own wisdom, your own knowledge, your own power. And that's what's gotten you to the place you're in now. And if you want to live, what you're going to have to do, which is going to be one of the hardest things for you to do, is to trust the wisdom and experience and knowledge of somebody else outside of you. And I was like, wow. Okay. Now you say that to an alcoholic or a drug addict who knows in his being that the next foray into drugs or alcohol could very well mean death or prison or insanity or worse. And um, you, it's not a hard sell. <laughs> Somebody that broken, it's very receptive to that kind of, of, of language. But you tell that to your regular American Christian who's really pretty much doing well in all areas of life and has some ideas on their own about how to apply the Bible and interpret it based on other things in life. And that same advice becomes highly offensive, like crazy offensive. You just can't say that to Americans. You can't say to an American that you, know, you are not the arbiter of all truth and your internal you know, wisdom is not always going to be the right thing. That's like crazy offensive to people. Why? Because since, we're, since this is the high holy day of the American religion, Super Bowl Sunday, we can talk about some of the high axioms of the American religion that we're all infected with as people and they all work together. One is we have all been marinated in the idea of individualism which means that this is, a, this, is the, the bio, this is the definition out of the Webster's Dictionary. And I'm, I'm going to read it word for word because it says, is individualism is a doctrine. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? That the interests of the individual are ethically paramount. And we're also, we're also basically rationalists. We've been taught that since birth, which means that reliance on our own reason as the basis uh, for the establishment of religious and other truth is the best way. And then we're also, we also like have bought into, as Americans, the idea of romanticism, which is funny because it's kind of like juxtaposed with the idea of rationalism, but romanticism says that, the, that belief, it, it's the belief that our imagination and our emotions are really some of the purest sources for us to to understand truth. Follow your heart. That's where that comes from. Now you put all those three things together into, you know, and, and all, of us are in, all of us are influenced by those things. You put all those three things together, 
Uh, and you get, you know, you get a person who believes in their heart and says to the world, in the great words of the theologian Little Nas X, can't nobody tell you nothing. <laughs> can't nobody tell me nothing. <laughs> Come on, everybody, sing along. We believe that, believe that in our hearts. It's no accident that that chorus is like the biggest song of last year because everybody's singing along with it. Yeah, nobody, can't nobody tell me nothing. And that, that kills alcoholics and drug addicts. And for Christians who have more manageable sin, it keeps us imprisoned and in chains. <laughs> now we all, we listen to the Bible, disclaimer, or Side note, Bible fully believes in individual rights. It's, uh, we believe in uh, that, that reason and imagination and our emotions are all gifts from God to be used rightly in the right way. However, the Bible also says crazy offensive things about us. Like Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things. It is desperately sick. Who can know it? It means it is so, your heart is, is so prone to lie to you because it is desperately spiritually ill that you can't even know how broken it is. James says that the destructive nature of sin doesn't really come from the outside. It emanates from within us, in our hearts, and our minds, in the very things that we, the very things that we trust to guide us are the very things that are broken and deceive us. That whole idea of can nobody tell me nothing, of rationalism, individualism, romanticism, all wrapped up into one is, is antithetical to what the Bible says. It, it, you know, a lot of times, there, you, know, there, you can use your wisdom and your, and, your, and, and, your, and your reason. Those are all good things, but there are certain times in life when we need help. We need direction. We need guidance. Uh, we need guidance from outside of our own perspective, our own desires, our own will, our own emotion, and that is why God has given and gifted the church with elders and shepherds and teachers to guide us and to help us when things get, when things, when things get blurry. And it happens to all of us. And so here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna look at, there's three different chapter of three different scriptures I picked out. The first one is our responsibilities to the elders in Christ. Second one uh, is the elders' responsibility to us in Christ. And three, I'm going to talk about why this is so important. So we're gonna, that's, the, that's the outline. Here's the big idea, is that Jesus calls us to a healthy submission to the elders as they care for us according to God's word for the purity and unity of Christ's church. So let's look at that one part at a time. First, Jesus calls us to a healthy submission to the elders. Let's read, let's read again uh, the passage from Hebrews. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. And let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. The first thing I want to convince you of is that elders are a real thing. We talked last week about supporting the mission and ministry of the church, and 
Uh, that the, in, inherent in that idea was that there are elders that, have been in, that are in the church, that it's an office that Jesus himself established and that Paul and the apostles then uh, went around and, and continued on. We know, we can see in the book of Acts, for example, chapter 14 and other places that wherever Paul went, wherever Barnabas went, wherever Timothy went, Titus went, they were always doing this, they were appointing elders for them in every church and with prayer and fasting, committing them to the Lord. They were setting a, a plurality, a bunch of elders together over churches to guide them. We know from Timothy 5 that the, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So the elders are to have a, a modicum of authority over the church to rule over the church and also to teach the word of God and to preach. And that was, that's something uh, that, that Jesus established through the apostles in the earliest, earliest times of the church. It's Jesus who established that, the apostles who carried it out, uh, not a later invention. And on top of that, the elders have, are of the church, elders in the church have been given real authority from Jesus. And th this is something that just blew my mind in seminary. When I went to seminary, I was thinking I was gonna be challenged by s salvation theology or all these things, but it was really, it was ecclesiology. It was, the, it was the, uh, the doctrine of the church and how the church operated and what pastors and elders were and the authority that Christ had given that, that blew my mind, really. Uh, there's, for example, Matthew 18, Jesus says to the apostles, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And just so we're sure that that's not like a one-off thing, John 20 also records Jesus saying to the apostles, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and then he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you hold, withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. That was like, that was like, those passages were like crazy mystery to me back, you know, before I had a good understanding of how the church operated. I thought, well, that must be something just the apostles had. But if you look at the, if you look at the trajectory of the apostles, the apostles call themselves fellow elders. Peter, in chapter, in chapter five that we just read, called himself a fellow elder with all the other elders that had been appointed and they commanded the elders to then lay their hands on and ordain and install other elders who had been rigorously tested. Uh, and then that power that Jesus has given to the elders in the church, so called the keys of the kingdom. He's given the elders in the church the power to, uh, to preach the word and to, and to bring people into the visible church and then also to remove people from the invisible church. And that, that's a sobering thing. Those are sobering powers that elders are called to use and to do in faithfulness to Jesus. But here's, here's the thing, the, the, the scary thing about it, well, for me, is that in, that, in, in Hebrews it says that we, the elders, are going to be held accountable to God for your souls, not just for mine. Like James says, not let, don't let many of you be teachers because you'll have a higher standard. It's not just that I have a higher standard to live with in my own life. It's just that when I, and before Jesus, at the end, he's gonna say, so so-and-so took off to Tijuana and uh, totally got, got themselves in a bunch of trouble. What'd you do about it? 
and I can't say nothing. <laughs> He's going to say, did you read that thing about the 99 sheep and the one sheep and all that? Did you get that part? I mean, we're gonna, the elders of the church are held accountable for the good and the shepherding of the congregation. Uh, and using that authority that God has given us rightly uh, to care for his people. And we're going to be judged on that. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so here's, this passage says our response to that. Here's our response should be, it says, let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no use for you, right? The, the, the word groaning, it really means, it means, it means, it means sighing because of great concern or stress. It's, it's like there's a whole different ball game between like walking into a situation where you know you're gonna get cussed out, <laughs> you're gonna get beat up and asked to leave. Those meetings are entirely different than going to meetings where you know that, that people have given you spiritual license and are receptive and are, li- are ready to listen to what you have to say and are really intent on following Jesus. And now that, that's not like, I'm not saying that as a value thing because sin deceives and sin hardens and sin uh, makes, it, sin creates that really difficult situation. And we're called as elders to go into that with love and concern and care as we're gonna talk about in the next, in the next point. But it says our response to this is that we should, is we should give our elders spiritual license to speak truth into our lives, even when that's difficult. And then it says, and then it says that to do this because to not do it would not be profitable for us. And what does that mean? Sometimes our kids are able to just wear us out. You know what I'm talking about? Parents, raise your hand. Amen. Right? Or they want to stay up late. Or they want a, a popsicle. And they're just like, you know, they, they, if you, they catch you at the right time of day, or, you know, or they're just, in, they're just crazy enough <laughs> or insistent enough, they can get you to the point where you're just like, okay, fine. I give up. Go ahead and do it. Right? The kids can do that. And is that profitable to them? No, because what we're trying, we're trying to do is raise them up into discipline, raise them up into goodness, raise them up into doing healthy things. But there comes a point when it's, the kids make it so difficult to do that that you eventually you just have to step back or you give up or whatever. And that's kind of the idea that he's talking about. It's not profitable for our kids when that happens, but it happens. And so Paul is saying, don't, don't be like that to the elders of the church. Don't be so defiant. Don't be so uh, just insisting uh, on your sin that eventually you wear them out and they're not able to help because that would not be profitable. It leaves you in your sin. It leaves you in the difficulty that you're having. It's not, it's not profitable for anybody, right? And this is really for certain periods in time, right? There's, when big seagoing vessels come out of open sea and they go into a port or a bay, there's a ship comes out and brings a pilot to that ship and the pilot like knows all the different 
you know, the sandbars and the way to get through this port to get to dock. And the captain of the ship hands over his whole ship to this pilot to get through these treacherous little narrow waterways. And that's kind of like what elders do and what the church does. For the most part, we can do pretty well on what happens in the church from being under the preaching of the word of God, from being part of a community group, from having people uh, speaking truth into our lives and being accountable to our friends and our family. We, as a church, we are developing and have developed a t- a, what we call like a four-tier system of pastoral care. It begins with the preaching of the word, placing yourself and, and coming and submitting yourself to hearing the preached word of God is like the first line of pastoral care. And the second part of pastoral care is being part of a community group or you're part of a group of people who speak truth into your lives. And just through those normal, regular conversations and regular relationships, we get a lot of guidance and a lot of care. One of the, the books that we're reading for the men's group, one of the best biblical counselors in the world says that, you know, most, most good counseling happens in those settings. And it's only when things get really difficult that a, a specialist has to be called in. Uh, and so, just like a pilot comes and guides the ship into a port, there's certain times when we need help to guide our souls through treacherous waters, and that's when the elders and the church comes into play to help us to do that. And we're called to do that joyfully uh, and not begrudgingly. Second point, on the pastors, on elders, they are called to care for us in accordance with God's word. I was at lunch the other day talking to somebody and <clears throat> I was recounting to them about how when I, when I was first saved, I just mentioned earlier I was saved out of legit alcoholic and uh, destruction and, and drug addiction destruction. And when I got saved or when I got, was brought out of that and first saved and first in the church, I was so, so grateful just to not be dead. <laughs> that I used to pray to God, I would, I would earnest prayers, God, do whatever you want with me. I was so grateful to not be dead, and I would pray, God, I pray that if I would get a warm meal and a, and a, a every day and a safe place to sleep every night, I'll have gotten way more than I deserve, and I just pray you would put me in the lowest place in the church, wherever nobody else wants to serve, wherever the hardest place is to be, that's what I want, and I would... I prayed that over and over again, and then as my trajectory started to show that I was, you know, I was going to end up being a pastor in a church, I was really confused. I was like, wait a minute, that's what's going on here? I prayed to be in the lowest part of the church. God seems to be on this trajectory to pastor. And then I became a pastor, and then after a few years, you start to realize, oh, he's answering my prayer. <laughs> should be in God's upside down kingdom, the pastorate, the elders of the church are and should be and consider ourselves to be in the lowest position of the church. And that's really what Peter's big idea is in this passage. He's saying this should be something that we eagerly undertake self-sacrificially knowing full well what it means to place ourselves in the lowest part as servants in the church. Let's read it again, 1 Peter 5. It says, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. 
Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. What does it mean to, in accordance with God's word? The obvious one is that the elders are only, we're only called to counsel people and to exhort people according to what the Bible actually says. And the actual things of faith and life that the Bible calls us to. Um, and so, you know, if you're in a situation where pastors are trying to tell you, you know, who to vote for, trying to tell you how tight your pants should be, trying to tell you like how long or short your hair ought to be, what car you should drive, what football team you need to vote for. You know, it just can get like, that's none of our business. But when it calls, the, but, but it does call us to exhort people and to encourage people and to call people to be faithful to the clear teachings of scripture. That's the, obviously the according to God's word part, right? So we're not gonna tell you who to vote for, what movies you should see, what music you should listen to. But there's certain things about how God has called us to honor him with our lives that we are gonna call people to account for. And are we gonna hold, we are going to hold each other accountable to those standards because they're super important. But Paul says, or Peter, sorry, Peter says, he goes on and he says that we do this by giving these contrasts. He says, not under compulsion, not because you feel forced to do it, but willingly, not for shameful gain, not because you're gonna get anything out of it material-wise or status-wise, but eagerly. And really what he's saying, he's like, he's like, this is what he's saying. He's saying you don't do it because you feel like you have to. You wanna do it because you feel like you want to. And even that isn't good enough. Not only do it because you want to, you do it because you have this sense that you get to. You get to do it. You get to serve God's people. You have been given the privilege by Christ to serve and to submit to Jesus and to submit yourself to sacrificing for the good of God's people. You wake up in the morning and you're like, I can't believe that God has given me this privilege, <laughs> which is not how I wake up every morning, <laughs> right? We went, we went to a, a conference, a leadership conference. There's a speaker named Jed Wilty, and he talked about pastoral burnout and how hard it can be. Uh, being a pastor, and, and he said, you know, he said he'd gone through these counseling sessions, and, and one day he woke up in the morning, and he, and, he, and he said to himself, I am so grateful that I get to go and be with God's people, and preach God's word, and serve God's people, and it was just such a wake-up call for me, and for the other leaders that went with us. We're like, wow, that's how, that's how we should be. That's what we're called to do, and that's why we need tons of prayer, to do that, to not get caught up in our own selfishness and our idolatry and our idiosyncratic you know, behaviors and uh, shyness and, and uh, whatever you know, pulls on us. But God calls us to do this because we see it as a great privilege. Uh, he also says, not domineering over the people, but by the example, by example. 
Why is that? Leading by example builds credibility, for one. Um, the church in the upside down kingdom, the pastors and elders are called to be the servants of the people. And so that Jesus says straight up, don't lord it over anybody, but instead be examples to the flock. No one's going to believe anything you're, what you say if you are not personally doing it yourself. There's a, and not only that, there's a saying, old saying in, in AA that we used to have, that you, can, you can't transmit what you haven't got. And if you haven't develop a spiritual maturity, you can't help anybody with spiritual maturity. And the opposite of that is you will transmit what you do have. And so there's a rigorous, there should be and is a rigorous process of vetting uh, and and establishing the call of God on, on men to be placed in that elder, in that position of eldership. Uh, And ultimately, the ultimate example for all of us is for Jesus. The same uh, Hebrews talks about that we're to look to Jesus who for the joy that was set before him, which was saving us, saving his people to himself, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Despising the shame, we're not supposed to glory or revel in the hardship of it, but we are to be joyful Uh, and to look to Jesus who was so joyful to sacrifice for us that the pastors and elders of the church are to have that same attitude and be joyful that God has called us to sacrifice ourselves and turn turn our lives over for the good of his people. I have a friend, uh, a pastor in San Francisco, planted a church up in San Francisco, and he was telling me a story about how he, there was a, a woman who started coming from, to the church from, from Metro San Diego area. She's a very progressive, lesbian woman, uh, and, uh, very, very worldly in all of her attitudes, and she would, just kept coming to hear the gospel. You know, she was like, wow, that, that, that sounds really beautiful. And she had certain hang-ups about the church, and a big hang-up was submitting to elders, especially elders who were men. Big, big hang-up for her was, and, for, and from her history, for good reason. And, and Chris sat down with her and explained to her, he said, you know, he goes, what you're, what, what you're called to do, he said, you are called to submit to my voluntary death to self for your benefit. That's what we're called to do. That was a, almost a perfect expression of what the pastor and what the elders are supposed to do for their church. You're called to submit to our pastors and elders who die to their own desires to serve us and to voluntarily place themselves in the lowest, lowest rung of the church as servants, just like Jesus did. And the, the woman said, that is the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. And then she said, if only if it were true. <laughs> if only if it were true. Because she'd had some bad experiences with churches and with the churches. And her understanding of the church was that the church would say flowery things, but then act completely different. And we were hypocrites. And we had great ideals that never really worked out in real life. And that brings us to the third part for the purity and the unity of the church. What does it even mean? Our, our membership vow says that we, we promise to promote 
the purity and unity of Christ's church. And I picked this long passage out of Ephesians that has, it's so dense, but I really just want to pull one big idea out of it, which I think is the central idea. And the big point is that it calls us, it's calling us to purity and unity in the church, and it gives us some hints about how that occurs and what threatens it and why it's so important. And when we read, look, when we read Ephesians 4, and we read that as Protestants, we see where it says, uh, the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, and we say, see, that's doctrinal unity. We just need to believe the same things about doctrine, about Jesus, and that's what it's calling us to do. If you're a Roman Catholic, you read the first unity call when it says call to the unity of the faith uh, or to the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And and the Roman Catholics say, no, look, see, it's about political unity. We have to have political and outward unity in the church to the world. But there's there's also, those, those are both true to their extent. We have to have like unity with one another politically, at least to some degree. We also have to have doctrinal unity, but there's another unity that's implied in there. There's an, a moral or ethical unity to mature, it says to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Jesus. That's talking about the character of Jesus. We're being called to grow into the character and moral and ethical likeness of Christ. Uh, not carried about by every wind of doctrine, human cunning, craftiness, deceitful schemes, but rather speaking truth and love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. All three of these things are, in, are important for our unity. If any one of them breaks down, it threatens the unity and the peace and the purity of Christ's church. Now, obviously, if we don't have any political unity, if we, don't, if we refuse to associate with one another at all, we don't have any unity, right? That's obvious. It's also for us fairly obvious that if we don't have doctrinal unity, we don't hold together, right? Because what people believe about Jesus and about salvation, those are very heartfelt, intense things, and it's just not even possible to sit in a church and hear preaching that contradicts some of those important primary doctrine. So we do have to have, and we are called pastors and elders through teaching to promote and to create doctrinal unity within the church, but there's, which orthodoxy, right? But also orthopraxy, our practice, how we live our lives, how we honor God with our lives is so important also, because if that breaks down, and not so obviously, that also can create division and threaten the unity of the church. For example, I was at a church, this is a long time ago, not this church, it was before I was a pastor, uh, and there was a girl in the church who was a great, oh, she was an amazing, amazing Christian girl, so down for Jesus, uh, you know, doctrinally astute, you could see she's loved Jesus with her whole life, she went through some real hardship, came out on the other end with the non-Christian boyfriend, and then before you knew it, she had moved the non-Christian boyfriend in with her, and they were living together, and it was publicly known in the church. Now, you might think, well, that's not that big a deal, except factions began to form. You know, she was very, with the, to the credit of the church, the elders went and talked to her. They said, hey, this is, this is, a, this is really clear that, you know, the Bible talks about you know, maintaining our sexual purity and sex being, you know, part of marriage and why that's a good and beautiful thing. But, 
You know, she responded by, you're just judging me, or that's how you interpret it. And these are like really clear things in the Bible, right? Um, But factions began to arise around it. One faction in the church began to say, you know, why aren't the elders doing anything about this? And began to have, have bitter feelings and resentment towards the church. And then another faction in the church was like, well, I guess this is okay. And some other people started getting into that practice as well. And then another faction of the church was like, why are you hassling this girl who's just trying to live her life? And by the time those factions got like rooted in and people started to have resentments against one another and the battle started, it was almost, almost inevitable and the church split apart in three ways. And you know, the horrible thing about that is that was the display to the world right? There's a big reason why that woman that my friend Chris was trying to minister to didn't believe what he was trying to say, because that's what she knew about the church, that we didn't, we try to make everybody else live by these standards, but then we don't even do it. And if we don't take what Jesus said seriously, why should anybody else? And not only that, but there was th- that created this infighting. There was no love between the congregation, and it blew apart. And this you know, woman, who was a Christian and known by all of her unchristian friends as a Christian, looked at that and was like, see? The point is, it's not only dangerous. The purity of the church needs to be guarded, not only because it's dangerous to the unity of the church, but it also damages the witness of Jesus in the world. Now, why... Does Paul, in, the, in this passage that we read, which is primarily about keeping unity and purity of the church, why does he only mention, why is he only focused on the elder gifts? There's no other gifts mentioned in this passage. He doesn't talk about helps, mercy, service, nothing that, none of that. He only talks about gifts to the elders. And really, he's talking about that the elders and the shepherds are Christ's gift to the church why does he say that? Because that is how, that is the, the structure and the, and the organization, that is what Christ has given us to may help us to maintain purity, to maintain unity in the church, uh, the authority that he's given us to help us navigate the treacherous waters of our own heart when our own reason breaks down in favor of emotion and desire and in favor of things that we know are not right. God has gifted us with the church and the authority of the church and the pastors in the church to shepherd us, to keep us from harm, and to bless us. Amen? So, we're called to submit to the authority that Jesus has given to the elders in the church. The elders are called to submit to Jesus as the lowest rung of the church, as servants to the church, to sacrifice themselves uh, is an example of what Jesus has done for us. And that in and through that, it becomes a huge blessing to the church because it, provi- it, it pr- pr- promotes the stability and unity and purity and, of the church, allows us to grow together in love in Christ. And it's also a huge blessing to those outside the church as a witness to the world of an alternative community that, that everyone is invited to come into and not only be just a member, but be adopted as sons into the new kingdom because of what Jesus has done for us. Amen? Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is beautiful.
beyond description. Even as you are, Lord, we thank you, Lord, that you've given us the church and you've given us pastors and elders to oversee us, Lord. We pray you would give us humility to understand that we're not always right, that we don't always have the best answers, and to admit that we are all, all of us, pastors, elders, everyone, susceptible to falling into sinful patterns which are destructive to ourselves, to the church, to the people we love, uh, and put a stumbling block in the way of the witness of the gospel to the world. I pray you would help us to be humble, Lord, to be open and accountable, to, to know that we're all in the same boat so that there's no shame in the fact that we can all be deceived by our own hearts. It happens all the time. No shame or guilt in that, Lord, and we pray that you would help us at ResPres be an open community, that we're transparent with one another, where our first thought when we're slipping into destructive patterns or thoughts would be, wow, I need to get some help for this. And when we see our friends and family doing that, we could say, man, I really want to help. That we would be a place where it's safe to be sinners, and it's safe to talk about it and be open about it so that we can all grow together and be bound together in the bond of love so that we might grow up into the full measure of the stature of Jesus to the glory of your name and for the salvation of the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's all stand and sing together in response to that.